Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Nashville. My name is Mark, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And this morning, we come to passage number 44 out of 49 in our sermon series to the Gospel of John. And um, some of you may be excited about the fact that we only have five messages left. We've been in John a long time, almost a year, well, over a year now, just over a year now. And you might be excited to move on to something else, but I need to let you know that as your pastor, I'm actually sort of grieving the fact that we only have five messages left in the book of John. I have thoroughly enjoyed taking a deep dive into this beautifully written narrative, and it served to strengthen my belief in Jesus. And I I hope that it served to strengthen yours as well. And as we've pointed out repeatedly, that's really John's purpose for writing this gospel narrative. He tells us very explicitly in chapter 20 and verse 30, which a verse we've, we've come back to over and over again. And it's he, there he says this, Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So belief is John's purpose, expressed purpose for writing this book. is why we've entitled our sermon series, with that one word, believe. He, he's carefully constructed his account of the words and the works of Jesus' life so that his readers might believe. But we could have easily chosen a different word to use as the title for our sermon series through John. And it's a word that's repeated over and over and over and over again through the narrative. Take a look again at verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John repeatedly uses that word through his narrative as well. Abundant life now and eternal life later found in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, now let me show this to you. We're going to take a, a quick, um, you've heard of walk through the Bible, we're going to streak through scripture, okay? We're going, to, we're going to go through John looking at some of the times, not all of them, but some of the times he mentions the word life. And your job is when I get to the point where we read, we're supposed to read life, I want you to say life out loud. So here we go. John 1, 4, in him was, and the was the light of men. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal Sorry, flip the page. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I am the bread of whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of I came that they may have and have it more abundantly. I am the resurrection and the Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you see a pattern? My friends, what I want for you as your pastor more than anything else is not that you would become good moral people. Good moral conservatives. No, that's small stuff. My desire for you is much deeper, much more significant, much bigger than that. My desire for you is that you would find abundant life in Jesus now and eternal life in him forever. That you would find soul-satisfying, thirst-quenching, hunger 
um, satisfying, abundant, soul-nourishing life in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Abundant life. I do not want you to be burdened with religion. I want you to find life-giving rest in Jesus. I want you to find what John wants you to find as he writes his gospel. Remember what Jesus said to people who were under the weight of religious burden? What did he say? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So before we dive into the narrative of John, I have a question to ask you here at the beginning, and that's this. Does the Christian life feel like rest to you? Does it feel like abundant life? Do you experiencing, experience living as a follower of Jesus as rest for your soul? If you don't, you're doing it wrong. You've missed something. You have found religion, but you haven't found Jesus. You haven't internalized one of the most important phrases uttered from the words of Jesus's lips, uttered from Jesus's lips. It is finished. It is finished. A, a phrase that's found in our narrative this morning. And we're going to unpack the significance of that. If you're a believer in Jesus or if you're yet to be a believer in Jesus. If you brought a Bible with you, go ahead and open it to John chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. Where we're going to read together a carefully crafted eyewitness account of the crucifixion of Jesus. The words of scripture will be up on the screen as we go along. Um, So um, it'll be up there as well. And if you don't own a Bible... I'd encourage you to stop by our connect point on your way out. Take a Bible that's, that's there as our gift to you. Just go ahead and take that home with you. Before we open the book, let's look to the author in prayer, shall we? Father, as we look into this eyewitness account of the crucifixion of Jesus today, would you open our eyes to see and open our hearts to understand and in- internalize the words of Jesus on the cross? and the significance of them for our lives. That's our prayer this morning. And we invite you to meet us here as we open your word, and we trust that you will. Amen. Now, early on in my pastoral ministry, I thought it would be a good idea, having recently graduated with a biology pre-med degree, to dive into the the, um, horrific, gruesome, gory, physiology of what happens to a person when they are crucified or when they were crucified by the Romans. So I did that. And I was about halfway into all the intricate details of that when I heard a from the back of the room. And then my microphone got really, really loud. The, The sound man had passed out and done a face plant into the soundboard. Um, now, Sean, don't worry. Um, I'm not going to do that today. Uh, because in his account of the crucifixion, the apostle John, his concern isn't so much the physiology of what happened. 
Not sure what that is. But his, John's concern is not so much the physiology of what happened on the cross. It's, it's more the theology, the theological significance of what happened. And since that's John's focus and John's emphasis, that's going to be ours today as well. Let's dive in with verse 16 of chapter 19. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Now, it was common for the condemned to be forced to carry their own crossbeam to the place of execution. That's the, the horizontal piece of the cross. And then it would be fastened to the upright beam that was already in place at the execution site. And, and John tells us that this was the case with Jesus. He had to carry the crossbeam of his cross. He doesn't uh, mention um, Simon the Cyrene that the other gospels do that helped him, but um, he does mention that Jesus did carry his cross, at least a, a portion of the way. And the place of execution was called Golgotha. Now, Christian tradition places the crucifixion and the burial location of Jesus within the old city walls of Jerusalem, where the Catholic Church has, has built a famous um, cathedral. Anybody know the name of it? The, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre of what it, is what it's called. But, but today, more and more Christians, or Christian historians, theologians, archaeologists, are now suggesting that the, site, the actual site for the crucifixion occurred just a couple hundred yards to the north of where that uh, cathedral is built, outside the city walls. Um, and right there, a couple hundred uh, yards north of the traditional location, is an outcropping of rock. Here's, here's what it looks like. Um, features that actually look like a human skull from the right angle and in the right light. Now, now, the location of this is preferable for a couple reasons, not only because of the geography and the fact that it actually looks like the place of the skull, Golgotha, but um, because John mentions in, at the beginning of verse 17 here that Jesus went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull. Now, where did he go out from? Most likely, that's John's reference to outside the city walls. This is supported later in the text where John will say that the place, this is in verse um, a little bit later on, the place was near the city, not in it. So this outcropping of rock today just so happens to be in Muslim-controlled territory, much like the, the Temple Mount itself where the um, big mosque is built. So here's what a zoomed-out picture of that rock outcropping looks like today. Um, when is, go ahead and flip, there it is. When Islamic authorities heard that this location was being considered by archaeologists as the actual location of Golgotha, they promptly built a cemetery right on top of it um, as a place to bury jihadists. Um, those are Islamic guerrilla holy war fighters. And, and strategically placed um, the busiest hub of their bus system right at the base of it. And the somewhat subtle but overtly passive aggressive signs in Arabic at the top there um, read two things. One is the, the title of the cemetery, Cemetery for Islamic Holy War Fighters. And the other sign says this There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. So there's definitely a bit of a, a turf war going on over in, in Israel um, that the Muslims are currently winning. And that's fine by me. 
Because we do not worship ancient holy sites. We worship an eternal holy Savior, don't we? Amen. Let's get back to the text. Without going into much detail, John simply states at the beginning of verse 18, there they crucified him. There they crucified him. Now, I promised I wouldn't go into too far into the gory details of crucifixion, but there's here, here, you just need to know a few things about crucifixion. First of all, Roman crucifixion was basically state-sponsored terrorism, okay? It, it was specifically designed to strike terror into the hearts of anyone who would dare defy the authority of Rome. Uh, I guess today's equivalent might be, um, you know, live-streamed beheadings by ISIS, okay? Secondly, what you need to know is that the Romans would perform crucifixions in very public places at very uh, populous locations or at loca- or times, such as the Passover feast, which is where we're at in our narrative in Jerusalem. The, the population of Jerusalem would swell four to tenfold during the Passover time. So that's a strategic time for the Romans to, to do a crucifixion and put it on display. Now, now much like Golgotha is today, the, the hub of a bussy, bus, bussy? busy bus station, um, Golgotha stood along a busy thoroughfare in and out of the city of Jerusalem, a thoroughfare that would have been um, overrun with pilgrims as they made their way in and out of the city walls. It's Passover time. So crucifixion served as a horrific and terrifying public warning system of sorts. Hey, you, you cross Rome, here's what happens to you. You get a cross. You will suffer a painfully slow death by asphyxiation designed to prolong the agony up to nine days. And it's no coincidence that our term excruciating comes from what term? Crucifixion. You know, when Meredith and I had small kids, they're growing up now, but we always hated Halloween time. Why? Because of the displays that were put up in neighborhoods and in stores, um, gruesome displays of death designed to um, terrify young children, really. And, And so we would shelter our kids' eyes as we went by these displays going shopping in in October because they would have nightmares later if we didn't. We'd tell them to look the other way. But imagine for a moment if, that you're the parent of small children in first century Israel. And you are on your way to the Passover feast or on your way back out to where you're staying out of the city. Where would you need to pass? All you're trying to do is get in and out to celebrate the feast, but the only route is to take them past this horrific crucifixion scene, a scene that's anything but fake. In a line along the roadside are actual people in the process of dying, lifted up for all to see. And you could try to look the other way. You could try to shelter the eyes of your kids, keep them from making eye contact from the, with the painfully twisted face of the sufferers. You could avert your gaze and keep from seeing their brutally beaten naked, naked bodies and the sight of blood streaming from the nail-pierced hands and feet, but you couldn't help but hear their agonizing screams of pain and the rattle of labored breathing. You couldn't help gagging over the horrific stench wafting from the mixed puddles of blood, sweat, and feces that were gathered at the base of the cross from the incontinent victims. 
This is the scene here when John simply says, there they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side of Jesus. Verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. I told you later in the text, there it is, verse 20. And it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and in Greek. It was customary for the Romans to write the formal criminal charges against those being executed on a placard of sorts and nail it to the top of the cross for all passerbys to read. Cautionary tale, don't do this or this happens to you. And the charge here against Jesus is this. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, and it's written in three languages, Aramaic, the spoken dialect of the region, Latin, the official legal language of Rome, and Greek, the lingua franca, you know, the, the common cultural language of the empire. The exact wording of the charge was rather passive aggressive on the part of Pilate. Remember, he's the one who capitulated to the mob against his own better judgment. They had forced his hands, and he probably resented, resented the fact that he had, had to um, give Jesus up to be crucified. He was trying to get out of it, but he was sort of stuck. And, and so he phrases the charges against Jesus in a way that would be most humiliating to the Jewish people. He wrote it as if Jesus really was their king, and here he is hanging on a cross, shamefully humiliated by the power of the Roman Empire And the Jews uh, take offense at this. Verse 21. So the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Sorry, guys. Not going to happen. Not going to change it. I'm keeping the sign just as it is. And what's ironic here? is that in his spite, Pilate actually authors truth, doesn't he? You know, in other gospels have him in conversation with Jesus saying, what is truth? <laughs> and yet here he is writing it, the king of the Jews. Jesus really is the son of David. Jesus really is the anointed one, the Messiah, the king of Israel. Despite the Jewish leaders, Pilate unwittingly declares to the world in Aramaic, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, triple translated so that everyone could understand it, Jesus of Nazareth is king of the Jews. God can use unlikely people to do his bidding, to announce things for him. You know, he used the high priest earlier in our text who unwittingly fulfilled or, or prophesied saying, you know, just one person has to die for the people. He didn't know what he was saying, but he was actually saying something that God wanted him to say. Pilate here, same thing. God is sovereign over all of this. Verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
Part of a Roman soldier's uh, compensation who is assigned to crucifixion detail um, was the clothing of the victims. They could either sell it and, and keep the money or keep the clothes for themselves. So while Jesus is hanging naked on the cross, there's four soldiers there that are um, dividing the spoil, shall we say. And they get to the most valuable piece of clothing that Jesus had. It was a, a tunic that was, didn't have any seams in it. Um, it was woven in, in one uh, piece of fabric. But instead of divide, tearing it into four pieces evenly, which would have dr- dramatically decreased its value, they decided, let's just cast lots to see whose lucky day it's going to be. And that's what they did. But what they didn't know is that they were fulfilling Scripture. Why does John take careful, um, or take time to carefully highlight this small, seemingly small detail? Well, he wants us, his readers, to once more see the subtle but sovereign hand of God in all of this. This is a direct fulfillment of a psalm written by King David, Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, King David is experiencing an intense personal attack and rejection. And he's feeling the emotional sting of that attack and rejection. And so he decides to use poetry to communicate his emotions. And in doing so, to communicate his anguish, he he reaches to the the edges of, of, of his imagination and he begins to paint a word picture of really an execution. But here's the deal. King David never experienced a public execution. This was written, this psalm, Psalm 22, was written a thousand years before Jesus came on the scene. The Romans weren't even around. Crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. But in his emotional anguish, King David writes this in Psalm 22. Look at the words from this psalm. For dogs encompass me, and a company of evil doers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. That's an interesting and very specific detail, isn't it? I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. What King David simply experienced emotionally, reaching to the very edges of his vocabulary to communicate in this psalm. Jesus, the king in the line of David, who will reign forever, Jesus experienced literally. And John wants us to see this. God has already ordained all of this to happen. He foreshadowed it a thousand years before Jesus even walked the earth. God is in control. Jesus didn't get killed. He laid down his life in fulfillment of Scripture. Verse 24, so the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So in addition to these four soldiers that we find gambling over the the clothes of Jesus, we also find four women who are on the scene. And and so we have to ask ourselves, why would John include this detail? Why would he highlight the fact that women are there? Perhaps it's to contrast who isn't there. We know that Jesus had four half-brothers who are undoubtedly in 
Jerusalem at that time. Every good Jewish person would go and travel to Jerusalem for Passover. So Jesus' four half-brothers are there, but they're nowhere to be found, likely in an honor-shame society, wanting to stay as far away as possible from the shame of a family member being crucified. We also know that Jesus had 11 faithful disciples outside of Judas. Where are they? Where are they? We know, we know that one of them is there, John. We'll learn that in a minute. But the others likely abandoned Jesus at this point out of fear and self-protection. But who was there? These four women that John mentions in his text. Why? Well, the motives of Mary, the mother of Jesus, are fairly easy to understand. But why are the other three there? One of, my, one of the striking things about uh, Jesus is the way that he prized and loved and honored women in his life and ministry. You know, it was unheard of in the first century for a rabbi to speak with and teach women on a regular basis. And Jesus broke all of those social protocols, all of those social norms. Remember, it was Jesus who initiated the conversation with the woman at the well. It was Jesus who insisted that Mary of Bethany be allowed to to sit and learn at his feet as a disciple. And so is it any wonder that these women who had been so honored and valued by Jesus would be the ones who would stick by him until the very end? And it shouldn't come as a surprise to us next week when we find out who God gave the privilege to and Jesus appeared to first after his resurrection. John only mentions one woman in the text. Other gospels mention three. Before the other disciples, the male disciples, even get a glimpse. Verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son, pointing to John. And they said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is an intensely personal detail in our text between Jesus and his mom and the apostle John. Tradition tells us that Mary's husband, Joseph, had passed away years earlier. Mary is now a a vulnerable widow, and the responsibility of protecting and providing for her would have fallen on Jesus as the eldest son. And, and while he is literally dying on the cross, you see the self, selflessness in this? You know, I, I get grumpy with a headache and very self-absorbed. Jesus is being crucified. And instead of thinking of himself, who's he thinking of? He's thinking of his mom. John, behold your mom, your mother. Mom, behold your son. All the other disciples have run the other direction, but there's one disciple that stayed nearby, the eyewitness, our author, who simply calls himself here what? The disciple that Jesus loved. Why does John call himself that? I want you to take that detail, put it in a pot, put it on the back burner. We're going to come back to that, okay? Why does John say the disciple that Jesus loved? It's John whom Jesus entrusts the care of his mother, and the text tells us that John fulfilled that. 
He, he took Mary and took care of her in his own home. Verse 28. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. You know, it's, it's unclear which scripture is fulfilled by Jesus uttering the words, I thirst, while on the cross. It, it could be either... Um, Psalm 22, where David is talking about the, his tongue sticking to the roof of his mouth, or it could be uh, Psalm 63. But, but given how John has repeatedly used the imagery of thirst and water throughout his gospel, it's fairly safe to assume that there's also some spiritual significance here. Sure, Jesus is physically thirsty. Think about it. He's hanging on a cross, losing blood, dehydrated in the middle of a desert. The sun is beating down on him. It's un, he's undoubtedly physically exhausted and dehydrated and parched. But I think John means to communicate something besides and beyond the physical here. Not only is Jesus physically thirsty, but in saying, I thirst, I think it's safe to say he's communicating spiritual thirst as well. For the first time, he's been cut off from the life-giving communion with his father. A communion that he's repeatedly described in his ministry as a spring of living water. Remember his words in John chapter 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And remember how Jesus offered living water to the woman at the well? And said, her, said to her, if you drink of this, you will never thirst again. So what does it mean? For the one who offered living water to be thirsty, to be thirsty. To say, I thirst. You know, other gospels record Jesus um, saying another quote from from uh, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John simply records Jesus saying, I thirst. But my friends, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. On the cross, Jesus is cut off from the eternally flowing life of the Father. For the first and only time in eternity, the Father has turned his back on the Son. And his soul becomes parched and dry. In our place, on our behalf, Jesus stood before the all-consuming fire of God's wrath against human sin. Isaiah 33, 14 states, Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? What's the answer to that question? None of us. But Jesus did for us. The hot desert sun parched the mouth of Jesus, but the consuming fire of God's wrath against the totality of human sin parched his soul. And Jesus said, I thirst, I thirst. For our sake, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, Paul would say later. My friend, Jesus has become spiritually thirsty on the cross so that our spiritual thirst can be quenched. So that you and I could drink of the living water that Jesus offers and never be thirsty 
again. Verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is very significant. In the Greek text, it's just one word, tetelestai, tetelestai, it is finished. It means it is accomplished. The work is done. Everything is complete. This is not a cry of defeat. It's not even Jesus acknowledging that the end is near. No, it's more than that. It's much more significant than that. It's really a cry of victory. It is finished. I have completed the work that you sent me to do, Father. This is a victorious declaration. Jesus has drunk the cup of God's wrath against human sin and drunk it to the dregs. He is hung there in our place on our behalf instead of us. Jesus has paid the debt of sin in full. It's accomplished. It's done. It's finished. Through the sacrifice of his life, he has fully accomplished the redemptive plan of God that was laid down before the foundation of the earth. It is finished. Hebrews 10 Verse 11 through 12 states this, and every priest stands daily at his service, standing being the place of work, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which he can never, which can never take away sins. But when Christ is offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, i.e. himself as the lamb of God, what does the text say? What does he do? He sat down the place of rest, at the right hand of God. My friends, salvation is by works, just not yours. Salvation is by the finished work of Jesus on the cross who died in our place, on our behalf, instead of us, and cried out at the end, it is finished, it's done, it's accomplished, it's over. All the work has been done, tetelestai. To tell us die. And as we close, I'd like to apply this phrase in two ways. First of all, those of you who are followers of Jesus, who've, who've placed your faith in Jesus for salvation, who, who have beheld the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and said, In your heart, I need that. I know that I need a Savior. I know I'm not perfect. I know that my sin. In my sin, I am unworthy and broken. I'm dead in my transgressions and sins, and I need to be made alive through Jesus and his life. I need that abundant water. If you've taken that step of faith, acknowledged your sin, acknowledged your need, and you've turned to Jesus as your Savior, here's how to apply this to your life. I want to revisit The question I brought up at the beginning, does the Christian life feel like rest to you? Does it feel life like soul-satisfying, thirst-quenching, hunger-satisfying rest and life to you? Does it feel like abundant life? If not, it's very likely that you don't really believe on a heart level what Jesus said on the cross, his last words, it is 
finished. Yeah, maybe you've given mental assent to it, but there can often be a large gap between our professed belief and our functional belief. All of us are still unbelievers in some form or fashion, and a process of growing as a Christian is moving from unbelief to belief in every area of life. And if the Christian life does not feel like rest for your soul, if it doesn't feel like abundant life, you have not, my friend, internalized it is finished. To tell us die. You've given mental assent to the fact that God loves you, but at a heart level, you truly believe that God might be a little bit happier with you if you just obeyed a little bit more, if you were just a little bit better of a person. But what is finished means here is the work is done. There's no more work left for you to do. Hear this. There is no future version of yourself that God delights in more than who you are right now in Christ. I'm going to say that again. There is no future version of yourself that God delights in more than who you are right now in Christ. God looks at you just as you are, loves you just as you are, sees you and your sin. But that sin is covered by what? The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That by grace, through faith, has been credited to you so that when God looks at you, he sees the perfection of the perfect son of God, the perfect lamb of God who has died for the sins of the world. He loves you. He accepts you. It is finished to telestai. You don't have to earn his approval. You already have it. And you can find rest for your soul in the perfect love of God. Remember that detail that's in the pot on the back burner? What is it? What does John call himself? What does John call himself? How does he self-identify? Say it out loud. The disciple that Jesus loved. Why does he refer to himself like that? I think it's because John has discovered that his truest, deepest, richest identity is found in simply being loved by Jesus. His name doesn't even matter anymore. I'm simply the disciple that Jesus loved. It's the love of God for him in Jesus that has become his deepest and truest identity. It's what he banks on. It's what he wakes up in the morning thinking about. I'm loved. I'm loved. That's my prayer for you as your pastor. Not that you would be burdened by religion, but that you would drink deeply in the love of God that is displayed in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where abundant life is found. That's where rest for your soul is found. My friends, there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more. And there's nothing you can do that can make God love you any less. We don't obey in order to be loved and accepted. My friends, we're already loved and accepted, and therefore we obey. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Living in light of God's love is rest for our souls. It's abundant life. It is finished to tell us die. Secondly, Perhaps you're here and you've just been kicking the tires on faith. Maybe you've even heard a few messages from the Gospel of John about this guy named Jesus. 
but you're not really convinced that you need him. Like, yeah, he's a good moral teacher, and maybe I can learn a few things from him. But I'm not that bad of a person. You know, I'm better than that person down there. My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, and I think God's okay with me, and that would be a mistaken thought. It would be true if God's standard was the person down the road from you, but it's not. God's standard is perfection. It's perfection. And as the Bible says, none of us are perfect. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of what God meant us to be, perfect reflections of his image. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Wages is what we earn or deserve, and what we've earned or deserved because of our sin is death. And that's just not physical death. That encompasses physical death, but it goes beyond that. It's eternal separation from the love of God, where our true meaning should be found. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the gospel. That's the good news. You don't have to be your own savior. You don't have to bear the, the, the weight of moral performance for your worth. No, Jesus already did that. Remember, it is finished. He did the work so that you could live with abundant life that's found in knowledge of God through his son, Jesus. He loves you. He loves you. And he wants you to spend eternity with him by grace through faith in Jesus. As the band comes back up, I want to invite those of you who might be kicking the tires on faith to accept Jesus. Put your faith in him. We're not into emotionally manipulative invitations here at this church. We are into good conversations over a cup of coffee. If you would like to know more about how you can put your faith in Jesus, it's it's really as simple as A, B, C. (laughs) Admit that you're a sinner in need of a savior. A, admit B, believe that Jesus is that Savior, that he died on on your behalf, in your place, bearing the wrath of God against human sin instead of you. And C, commit to follow Jesus with your life. If you want to discuss that with somebody over a cup of coffee, I'd invite you on your way out. There's a a table back there called the Connect Point. There's some uh, little... What are those called? Clipboards. That's what it is. Clipboards. And there's, there's a pen there. And um, that's also if you want to volunteer, which you do. You want to volunteer for the setup team. Um, but uh, if you would like to have a conversation with, with somebody about how to put your faith in Jesus Christ and follow him with your life and find that abundant life we've talked about, if you would just check the other box on that form and say, I would like to have a conversation with somebody about faith in Jesus Fold it in half, stick it in the offering box. We'll follow up with you. Make sure you put your name and contact information on that as well, okay? It is finished. It is finished. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that one word before Jesus hung his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. To tell us that. May we find life in that word. May we find freedom from the moral, moral performance for our worth, but find our worth and our identity and our truest meaning in the fact that you love us, 
And you loved us so much that you gave your only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal, abundant life. Thank you, God. 